Well, hello, everyone. It is That Williams Guy here for another episode. We are recording Sunday, May the 7th at 12, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And, you know, I was sitting there the other day thinking, I haven't had John Holson on the show in a while. I should probably reach out to John. As I was thinking that, my text alert went off on my phone and I picked it up and it was John Holson texting me. Hey, you want to talk about, as a matter of fact, yes, I do. It's <laughs> How are you doing, sir? I am doing well. How about yourself? I am rolling, as as the Tombstone quote would say. Yes, indeed. I hear my dog here is trying to get me a laugh. <laughs> uh, well, that's always an acceptable Five pounds of, uh, of mixed uh, Australian shepherd and cattle dogs. So there you go. To be a lap dog. There you go. There, there is an Australian shepherd running around this house somewhere. Uh-huh. Right. That is about 55 pounds of cotton ball. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I understand that. There you go. Uh, if you would introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. John Holson. Uh, gosh, where, where do I begin? I've been a student of all things martial for a long time. Got uh, got involved in martial arts as a kid, um, trained pretty heavily, uh, got involved in competitive shooting via small bore rifle as, uh, as a kid, uh, literally uh, junior high, um, shot... Uh, you know, did that for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Continued both of those. Went in the military. Uh, got I was on a competitive rifle team. Got drafted over to a pistol team. Uh, got uh, got some experience there. Shot competitively for a few years. Uh, during that time, my military career started off in military intelligence. Uh, was a human intelligence collector, as they're known uh, now. Got I uh, was lucky enough to get involved in a couple of programs where we were sending. Uh, folks into places that um, were not benign, and their job was to look at things and talk to people and come back. Often we, uh, you know, we doing that, you try not to be doing that solo, but uh, two-person team was was very common, sometimes solo. So I uh, was involved in something that some folks call the uh, the original loan operator course. I think that's uh, that's that's probably a, a little grandiose, but um, the bottom line was we were working at survival skills for individuals. Along the way, I was a husband, a dad, a father of five. I would come back in between deployments and obviously uh, you know see my role as protector of the family and so i was looking at that time at you know what's the nexus between those skills and actually you know again my military career a little different i was not doing you know small unit tactics even let alone you know larger stuff it was really individuals uh, on their own and living by your wits to a great degree, a great emphasis on uh, awareness and preemptive um, action to get yourself out of a situation so you don't have to go to use of force. Well, that sounds a lot like my task as uh, as a civilian, as a dad. And uh, so, yeah, dovetailed. Uh, eventually went into uh, into Army Special Forces, uh, the, the Green Berets, as we talked about a, a few moments ago, and there did a, a number of things. But uh, part of that career also, I ended up working with people that were doing the same job I used to do as an intelligence guy. So I was there. You're kind of the trainer, and uh, uh, I, I hate to say it, but people would say the nanny at times. Uh, you were the person with the most experience, often in that situation. And again, you're trying to prepare people to uh, to get in and get out of places with the the least uh, least problem. 
became, uh, got out, became uh, kind of a traveling trainer for a while, worked full-time for a company called Insights, did a lot of law enforcement training at that time, which happened in a, a weird way. Uh, we just had more and more cops coming to our private classes and then asking us to train their agencies. And my first response was, I don't know anything about being a cop. I'm, I've never done that. I, I can't teach you how to be a better cop. And I had a couple of mentors, law enforcement officers that said, yeah, we don't want you to teach. We don't want expect you to teach us to be a better cop. But you know what? There are some tools that you have, some techniques, tactics and procedures that uh, we found pretty, pretty useful for us individually. And we'd like to expand that to our agency. So ended up doing quite a bit of that. Um, Along the way, um, definitely, you know, went to all the schools and did some kind of uh, close quarter battle kind of stuff, room entry kind of stuff. So taught that on the road for a few years, both law enforcement and uh, folks like uh, nuclear power plant, guard force and, and that sort of thing. Uh, now I own and operate a indoor uh, range gun store and training operation uh, between Seattle and Everett, Washington. And I'm just kind of getting, deciding to get back on the road a, a little bit. Just, I, I want to, uh, I, I want to share. I want to pass on. I'm, I'm really interested in talking to the current and next generation of instructors and giving them um, my observations and letting them do with it what they will. So that's kind of my motivation. I'm, uh, we'll talk more about uh, where you can find me if uh, if you're interested to do that. But yeah, that, that's pretty much my background. Well, you just said something that just struck a chord with me. Uh -huh. So what are the observations that you're trying to impart to the younger guys? Hmm. Well, the biggest one is that your, your skills have to be there. That's that to me, that's a baseline. Um, and, you know, I, I use a lot of analogies uh, to driving. If you uh, if you learn to drive and can still remember when you learned to drive, that was too long ago for me. But I I've taught some people to drive not that long ago, my kids. And you look at how much mental effort they have to put in to get in the car to go where they want and stop where they want it to. And, and they're just, you know, their brain is full of how much steering input do I put in? How do I apply the brakes to not overshoot the white line or stop a whole car length short, you know, your bumper within six feet of the white line kind of thing. We've got to get to the point of now the, the term we use, of course, is automaticity based on, on neuroscience. We used to just call it unconscious competence, right? We have to have skills that operate in unconscious competence. But once you have that, the next piece that is just absolutely critical is it's not even a single piece, but we could lump it under the mental observation or perception, cognition and decision making piece. And, you know, I, I tell folks that the average Green Beret, you know, is maybe an A class. If we if we we're going to compare it to competitive shooting, uh, if we talk rifle skills, he's probably equivalent of about an A class shooter. Uh, if we talk pistol skills, he's probably a B class shooter. But you know what? They don't lose very often. They don't lose very many fights. Why? Because of all the mental aspects. And you might say, oh, it's because they brought 25 of their buddies with them uh, sometimes. But uh, but again, I was working with onesies and twosies. And the same thing is true. So really, that is if I was going to beat the drum on anything, it is how do we train that perception, cognition, decision cycle? Um, that that would be 
the single thing. But honestly, I start before that, when I talk about aligning training with reality, I start with a, a needs analysis where, you know, just like any other task, I was trained as a uh, instructional program designer. Well, you look at a needs analysis. What is it you're trying to accomplish? What are the um, learning objectives and what are the enabling learning objectives? You break it down smaller and smaller pieces. And that's something that we don't get the opportunity to train with very often or train in very often, whether we're talking civilian or law enforcement, in my perception. Um, force on force, of course, is the ultimate. But at that point, that's kind of like throwing you almost into the game if we're going to use a sports analogy. And if you look at whether you're talking football or baseball or, or other sports, you know what? They're doing strength training. They're doing uh, coordination training. Uh, they're doing man-on-man -man drills that they have to perceive and, and execute specific uh, responses to specific stimuli before they ever get around to scrimmaging, before they ever get around to a game. And by the time we get to force on force, you're lumping so much together that, frankly, the building blocks often aren't there. And it can be difficult for the student or the instructor to determine where uh, where is the lack, where's what's the weak, weakest links. So uh, breaking that down in advance and, and looking for ways to train it is uh, is something I think is super important. Yeah, from the from the law enforcement perspective. I see institutionally, there's 18,000 agencies in the United States, so there's 18,000 ways of doing things. Sure. And often there are sub ways of doing things depending upon who within the agency is, is doing it. Um, there is an institutional that bias that spreads across the whole thing of block or silo training mm -hmm. where, okay, you have to be certified on your pistol. So we train you to a point where you pass a qualification course for your pistol. All mm -hmm. right, you have to be certified on a baton. So we teach you, you know, a certification course on the baton, one on the taser, one on all these other, and I'm just staying in a use of force uh, uh, universe here. And we teach all these things individually. Well, they've been trained on all these things, so therefore they must know how to use them. Well, unless there is something that links those things together, you know, you've sat in the room and watched a PowerPoint presentation on use of force, and you've been on the range for a qualification course, there may not be a connection that gets formed in the brain there. And especially when you start trying to start tying in all the less lethal tools, the defensive tactics things, Unless your training involves, I've got this baton in my hand, and now I need to get to my pistol. Yeah. How would I get rid of this baton and get to my pistol? Or I've got the pistol in my hand, and it's not needed. I need some other tool. How do I accomplish that? Right. And then the first time the officer faces that scenario is actually in a game. They didn't even get a chance to scrimmage it. Exactly. There's, there's, there's a big disconnect on that end, and I'll, I'll take ownership from that. I'm a trainer. Yeah. Yeah. but you know there's there is limited and assets in time and, and manpower and et cetera that make some of that hard but i do think that's an institutional failing and then unfortunately we get those failings now are all captured almost mm -hmm. in real time and broadcast to the world yeah absolutely yeah i think uh 
you know, there's there's so many again to to break that down and and kind of uh, to get there. But to go back a few steps, you know, one of the things that uh, is important, you know, in in the military we have things we call immediate action drills, and the idea is that. It, this is not a, a Pavlovian response that you get a, a similar stimuli and you do a single thing. Well, in some ways it is if we can break it down far enough, but but it, at least you have short scripts. And the idea is to get you into a better place that buys you a second or two to then apply more cognition to the problem and maybe then choose a, a, a more a better course of action and a more thoughtful course of action. But there are things that you need to really get down to just kind of a, a programmed response. And an example, um, you know, getting real specific, if I, I, I never want to look at the wrong end of a muzzle. If I'm looking at the wrong end of the muzzle, I need to move. It's that's just that simple. I need to move. I could be teaching and a student turns toward me with a muzzle. I could be it could be a use of force situation. But looking at the wrong end of the muzzle should not produce anchor your feet and think about it. It should produce movement. Now we can go a little further. If I'm within arm's reach of that, it's usually movement in because that's going to be the quickest way to get off the line of power. It's in and sideways and using your hands to deflect or control. That's the same whether I'm on a range again as an instructor or student or whether I am in a, loose, a lethal force encounter. If I'm not within arm's reach, I need to be moving to create angle off of that muzzle. If it's a deadly force situation, I need to be drawing. If it is something else, I need to be speaking. But the point is the movement, see muzzle move, is something that is can be hardwired in as pretty much a Pavlovian response. Um, I shouldn't be looking at the muzzle end of a gun. And that, that's kind of an example, and it, it can be challenging to people to think about, you know, how to develop those kind of, uh, I'm going to use military terminology because I don't know terminology that fits better. We could use sports terminology. It's a play, right? When you see this in the offense, you as the defense, you do this. Um, there's branches, but um, ideally in, in, in training design and in design of conflict, we want the branches to be a step or two in, not at the beginning, because if your first movement is more than a single branch, step in if I'm in arm's reach, step a different direction if I'm not, um, you can get in that paralysis analysis type of thing. And if you and or if you're unable to take in the necessary information due to environmental factors or whatever, you can't go anywhere. So. You know, I look for opportunities to do that sort of thing, and we can break that down if you if you look at the Boyd action cycle, the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act. What we've just done is we've cut some pieces out of that completely, and we have minimized other pieces. I have an observe. I have an absolute minimal orientation. I'm either here or I'm there, and I go directly to action. There's no decision. Um, if I'm close, this is the one answer. If I'm further away, this is the one answer. That's the immediate response. And we can practice stuff like that, even on the square range. Um, we'll talk more about different tools later, but you know, I started doing things like that and others as well. Um, you know, um, 
John Murphy's using handheld lasers. I was using handheld lasers. John Hearn has his lights and I've only seen a little bit of what he does. And of course, that's only a part of the things you can do with those devices. You can add cognitive load. But before we even get to cognitive load, thinking about what sort of scripts we can have or immediate action drills or plays we can have in our playbook. I, I think it's really important. Uh -huh. You know, we did the cognitive conclave yeah. this past weekend was, was Hearn and Gellhouse and myself. And it was amazing how much just putting cognitive load on people uh, impacted their mm -hmm. performance of simple skills. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, we, we tested their their basic skills before we started putting cognitive load on them. And, sure. and, and it was really, you know, I, I ran a drill where, you know, they, they demonstrated that they knew how to clear a malfunction mm -hmm. and their pistol ran another drill where they demonstrated that they knew how to do a reload. Mm -hmm. when they're all of a sudden they were faced with the task that they had to diagnose whether their pistol was empty or having a malfunction, right. it, it caused yeah. some problems for some people. And right. that's just a simple example. Then we started getting into some of the stuff her and Gilhouse were doing. Yeah. And when you're actually having to make decisions along the way, mm -hmm. it really does impact performance. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's two places. One is that I absolutely agree with everything you've said and seen it as well. And it's absolutely worth doing. There is a step before that as well. And that is just simple perception. The, if you have the need to perceive, um, particularly if that need is happening during a time that we have never practiced perception before. And I can tell you for the vast majority of shooters, that is while pulling the trigger. Um, while pulling the trigger, they are not perceiving much else of what's going on around them. Uh, that next level, they're perceiving the gun and they perceive the malfunction and can go from there. But we start changing things in their environment, like might happen if a innocent was about to pass in between you and the shooter or immediately behind the shooter. Um, if uh, the shooter drops his weapon, if the a second shooter appears and I'm working on all of that stuff now and we've got a, a device that is out there that is still in beta it's not really out for the public yet but it allows us to pre-program uh stimuli and have a timer the shot timer is overlaid on top of when this visual stimulus changes so we're able to document you know, how long did it take you to actually change your behavior when the stimulus changed? And watching people, for example, shooting, particularly if they're shooting iron sights and have trained to a hard front sight focus, um, several things happen. One, first, they find they can't keep up with changes at the target or around the target. Secondly, as they begin to shift their mental and visual focus toward the target, they then lose track of the sights and their accuracy uh, suffers greatly. So, well, you know, I credit this to Dustin Solomon. He said, you know, um, talking about law enforcement shootings, there's some studies that go back a long ways, FBI studies from 20, 25 years ago that it wasn't the focus of the study, but a conclusion you would come to is when they look at the background of the officers is that 
qualification scores tell us very little, uh, give us very little information about what to expect when that officer gets in a, a lethal encounter. Um, there are very good shooters that do very well. There are very good shooters that do poorly. There are marginal shooters that do very well. Um, and we attribute that to stress. Uh, somebody's trying to kill you. It's And all that's very true. But Dustin Solomon points out, you know, if we look at at modern sports science and analyze the tasks, we're only training on a tiny fraction of the tasks necessary. We're not training. Well, what is, what is the stimulus to begin shooting? It's visual. Uh, it's virtually always it's visual. Yeah, you might hear a gunshot or hear someone in the next room threatening something. But until you go around the corner, until you get eyes on, you don't know who you have to apply force to. So the go signal is visual. Um, the stop signal, when we ask people typically, you know, when do you stop shooting? Well, when he's no longer a threat, well, what's that look like? Well, he, he's, you'll hear different things. He drops his weapon. He turns to run. He falls down the ground. And mm, all those may be true. Sometimes they may not be true other times. Um, but what about, as I mentioned, what about somebody you don't want to shoot is about to eclipse you? What about, um, the, his buddy, uh, just came in from outside to see what's going on. That's that robbery you're in the middle of, and now you've got a second threat. It's rare, but it happens. And how are we training for it? We're not. Um, so, uh, we need to train to start visually to modify our behavior from based on a visual stimulus and to cease of the application of lethal force all to a visual stimulus where on or around the the threat area first uh, eventually we want to widen that but uh i too have, have documented um and and don't get me wrong those folks with really good physical skills do the best if they recognize what they need to do I've been lucky enough uh, to run a few very highly ranked competitive shooters through this program that I'm doing. And uh, two of them uh, did exactly what they needed to do. They slowed their splits down uh, from in the 0.2 to 0.3 range to the 0.4 to 0.5 range. So they didn't overshoot. Um, and they maintained over 90% accuracy. Um, even the draw speed to a visual stimulus is slower. Uh, another couple of highly developed shooters continued to run 0.3 splits and uh, their accuracy went down around 80% and they overshot in uh, a quarter to a third of the scenarios. When I say overshoot, um, for science and some other folks have... Mm, the, the number we kind of come up with is if you fire a shot up to half a second after the stimulus is, is no longer there, that that's explainable. We can bring in the expert witness to talk about the neurophysiology and how that happens. Uh, shots beyond a half a second get really hard to justify. And as you uh -huh. mentioned, there's video everywhere nowadays. So when I say overshot, I'm talking about firing one or more shots more than half a second after extinguishment of the lethal threat stimulus. Uh, so uh, so the, the point there is that having those really good physical skills allowed these people to throttle back and still perform very well, albeit at a significantly slower uh, pace. Uh, the cool thing to me is that with this stuff, I can document that it's trainable. I will tell you that mechanically, like in a bill drill, 
I average about two O splits, you know, maybe if I'm trained up a little, little less than that, but honestly, two O is probably where I am. Some one eight, some two twos thrown in a, a lot in there about two O. Um, I had to slow down when I'm using three subjects with changing behavior. I had to slow down into the sixes to begin with, to not overshoot. Now, having worked at this stuff a bit, I'm in the threes. I can now run in the threes and the amount I'm overshooting while running in the threes, I'm very seldom more than two tenths over. Um, after the extinguishment of, of the stimulus, do I still shoot? Uh, so it's trainable, but if we don't even know we need to train it, yeah, um, yeah. The, when you're first faced with it, the results are going to be ugly. Yeah. Some of the things I've been working on with my guys at the sheriff's office were exactly some of the things you just were talking about. Uh, you know, you go into visual stimulus is how it's gonna gonna start. I have them. I have a drill now where I'm have them two guys. They're side by side. They're still targets downrange. They have a flipper paddle mm -hmm. as their target. Well, whoever's on the left is the initiator. So the deputy that's on the right has to be watching the deputy that's on their left, and they can't start until the deputy on the left starts. And, and having them, they're having to watch it. It's it's been interesting to see some of the the varying responses because I know what these a lot of these guys with their draw to first shot time is, and like when it's a simple just go. But when they're having to watch and perceive what that other person is doing, oh, his hand just went to his pistol. Now I may start. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll even see a little physical right. change in their bodies. Oh, okay, that was what I'm supposed to be looking for. And then they then they go. Yeah. It's also been interesting watching them, you know, with the target. If they hit it, it moves. Right. And it's funny as, as you'll watch them, I'll see some of them, they'll shoot, and then their head comes up off the gun, and they look to see if the target moved or not, then they go back down. I said, if you have to look pick your head yeah. up and look you probably didn't hit it in the first place if your vision is where it needs to be you'll see whether or not you hit it right and it moved and i know there's this big whole big thing on iron sights versus dots and everything out there and target focus versus focus and sight focus guys you can do all that with iron sights too it's easier with the dot but you can do it all with iron sights too absolutely but it's been very interesting watching the differences in performance and behavior when I'm throwing those cognitive wrinkles in on them mm -hmm. that they haven't been getting. Right. And, uh, and some of that's my, I've been their trainer for 14 years. Sure. Well, so you said two really interesting things there um, and, and you use the term cognitive, but I would point out for people that are, are just maybe considering this for the first time, there's actually two tasks. First is perception. You have to see it. And just as you said, where they're raising their head tells me they're not seeing it. And that's, you know, I've been using a term since uh, the, the, the mid uh, mid 2000s uh, site video. And I the, the idea I think we've done more damage with the concept of site picture to defensive or practical shooting than any other single concept that I can think of as a reasonable, responsible trainers. Um, somebody that represents a lethal threat to you is not going to be a statue. Whether their feet, I'm not talking about a lateral runner. I'm talking about the fact that the body sways, the body moves. It definitely reacts if you start hitting it. You have to 
run a gun. I, I use the concept of like playing a video game where you're playing some kind of a flight simulator where you're trying to shoot down, whether it's spaceships or, or uh, you know, Fokker biplanes, it doesn't matter. You're trying to line your sights up with the threat and press the trigger when it's lined up. Or maybe a, a simulator, a racing simulator where you're you're trying to maintain lane position. You've got to constantly be putting inputs into your gun and your sights are the reference point that is telling you whether you're still centered up in the lane or whether you're, you're lined up with it. And when you are, you continue that cycle of manipulating the trigger and you manage the cycle of recoil. We live in video. We, we catch balls in video. We, we throw balls to people that are moving in video. We drive in video. We don't. And then sight picture. Well, sight picture, I think sight picture is a remnant of bullseye shooting. Uh, where nothing moves, nothing changes. And the idea, you know, I'll take it one further, the idea that if nothing moves, what do you want to do? You want to achieve perfect sight picture, sight alignment in the right place on the target, and then press the trigger without allowing anything to move. Guess what? I just told you everything's going to be moving. So no, no, you don't want to put any unintentional movement into the gun when you press the trigger, but you need the ability to continue to drive the gun to the center of what you're hitting while pressing the trigger. That is movement. So again, the concept of get everything aligned perfectly and then press the trigger without disturbing anything. Yeah, if we're talking bullseye shooting, uh, but that isn't reality, folks. That, that skill there's certainly crossover, but it is less than ideal training for the real thing. Yeah, there's a classic drill out there that the the competition or metric side loves. This mm -hmm. is the build drill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, what is a grandmaster shooter is going to be able to complete a build drill in under two seconds? Is typically the measuring stick there, mm -hmm. and you know, let's draw and fire six shots onto the A zone of a target. You know, is the classic build drill. Well, that's great. I'm very impressed with your with your technical skill if you can complete that build drill in under two seconds i got news for you though that same spot's not going to be there for yep. all six shots exactly <laughs> and wow we can be impressed with the technical skill the application side of that is that drill is actually kind of useless yeah it it shows us again i would say the person who can do it in even sub three seconds has automaticity has conscious competence in the mechanical operation of the gun and uh, then we we can work on other things with them but uh but as an objective uh it's not an objective that that i'm interested in spending a lot of time on and that it really brings me to uh to to how do I decide how I want to do things? How do I want to develop a skill? And of course, the idea that, you know, we'd start really basic that a lot of people unfortunately don't realize. So I'm going to articulate it is you go to a class, you, you get introduced to a skill, you get introduced to a concept, you get trained in it, quote unquote, until you go practice that skill. It's, it, you don't have it. It isn't yours. It, it's not something you can reach down and, and grab. Uh, so many people will shoot a drill and uh, one will get to, they don't really know what it's 
doing for him and not doing for him. But the still a week from then, they're not going to be able to shoot that drill at the same level of skill because, um, you know, they got they got coached into just what to do in the moment. Uh, but it's not there. They they don't have it. So. Yeah, you get trained in it, then you got to go practice it. Then you need some form of testing that requires you to perform it on demand uh, without the preparatory of, all right, get ready to do the thing. No, no, you need to be able to recognize the thing. Again, I going back to my military career, we we learned this. I was an instructor at the Special Forces Medic School as my uh, my last assignment, actually. And there we already it was incorporated to a great degree already, but we took it a lot further and found it really valuable. If I tell you, show me how to put on a tourniquet, show me how to pack a wound, show me how to put on a, a dressing, that's one thing. But if I give you a live animal role model with a wound and say, make it quit bleeding, um, that's a different thing. And obviously the first step is figure out which of those three is appropriate. But the other is that even there, you see skill degradation because they haven't preloaded the skill into that cognitive space where they're going to be able to immediately activate it. And uh, so the more that you can create training, now we're almost into testing where you have to perform um, with a, a, a flash perception of a relatively unknown skill. Um, that, that brings me to one other feat is that, you know, people talk about, we used to use the, um, the scale from unconscious incompetence, you don't know what you don't know, to unconscious competence. And something that I've said for a long time is that unconscious competence is actually not the highest level. There's a level higher than that where you're performing conscious, excuse me, unconsciously, but you are consciously monitoring what you're doing and can dip back in consciously and provide a little tweak or a little change. And uh, it's, it's interesting looking at sports science where they have done research, actually looking at brain activity, EEGs, and the difference between, uh, they often use the comparison of an elite and a near elite athlete. And by, by the way, those definitions are, we're talking, they're all on the same NFL team, right? They're all on the same pro basketball team. Uh, we're talking about the, the record breakers or the, the people that absolutely stand out in whatever role, because now we can begin to see some interesting differences because phys physically most of those people are, are just damn near interchangeable. Uh, they've got the same coaching. They've got the same nutritionist. They've got everything going on the same. They've got the same desire in the vast majority of times. Why do some of them rise above the others? And it really comes down to a lot going on with this perception, cognition, decision-making and uh, some studies that I was looking at recently where they actually kind of uh, chunk into an, an associative symbol type thing of this is the skill, but I've got conscious monitoring over that skill. It can reach back in there and tweak it uh, as we go. So it just just an aside. Uh, it's, it's funny you bring in the sports analogy there. Mm -hmm. When you hear people talking, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about football or whatever. They'll say a particular NFL quarterback sucks no 
No, he doesn't. <laughs> there has never been a quarterback on an NFL roster that was not phenomenal when compared to all of the other quarterbacks who have ever played the game. The difference is when you're comparing them to a Joe Montana, a Tom Brady, et cetera. A guy who is third string holding the clipboard on NFL sideline is among the elite players at that position in the world. Yeah. Yeah. But he may not be one of the best 32 going at this moment or one of the best ever, you know, that have played the game. And it just kills me when people, they, they, they get all bent out of shape over that kind of stuff. And, you know, especially when you start getting down into the college level, you know, that quarterback sucks. Okay. Really? Where'd you play college football? Right. <laughs> uh, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we develop that? That kind of stuff is, is the, uh, the question. So I have some guidelines that I use. Um, so I have a really narrow interest in this. My, frankly, my, my interest has always been the personal safety security side of it, whether I am an intelligence operative or whether I'm a dad or whether I'm a cop, um, the personal security safety piece of this is is what really interests me. So anything that I do, if I'm going to shoot competition, I want to know what it does for me in that realm, not in the competition realm. I'm not doing it for the joy of competition. Now, some people are, and that's awesome. Go for it, dude. Uh, but at the same time, we go back to that needs analysis, and I want to know where I fall across the board in all of these needs. And uh, so me, I'm, I'm kind of, like I say, any of those things I'm doing, I'm doing it for a, a secondary purpose rather than the primary purpose. So when I start looking at, at breaking down training and practice, um, to the greatest extent possible, I want to start the drill from the point of knowing what I would actually know in a real situation. Um, and that that does things like ready positions. Um, as a private citizen, I am probably responding from my holster the vast majority of the time. Um, when responding from my holster, I don't want to start from what I call the shoot me now posture. Um, you know, when I do scenario based training with students, something we see not infrequently is you come in to rob the place and it, it's a it's a very scripted situation. The 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 uh, the bad actor is going to come in and he's going to get the money from the till and he's going to leave. And that that's it. That's that's all he's going to do unless a student in the environment causes him to do something else, unless he causes him. The biggest thing, of course, is if you uh, appear to present a threat to him. He has a very low uh, threshold to use in force. And uh, as we uh, are told, that's the way bad people are. So, um, so they come in and, you know, you'll see one student that all of a sudden out of the, everybody else is, is acting like you might think they might act when faced with a guy screaming and waving a gun around. Uh, but one student squares up to the threat, postures up like he's about, like he's in a Western movie and, you know, it's the showdown at high noon on the main street. And of course my trained bad guy just shoots him in the face. And the student, of course, is outraged. They're like, what did you do that for? What you just walked in here and assassinated me, you just walked in here and shot me. What what am I supposed to learn from that? I didn't. And we say, OK, OK. 
well, now I've got video. I used to not have video and have to try and explain it to it. Now I'm able to pull up the video and say, well, let's watch the video. Mm-hmm. And you point out to them, hey, one of these things is not like the others. One, you were giving off the shoot me now vibe. You were giving off the posture. So guess what? I want to practice my draw stroke from a shoot me now posture because I'm not interested. Well, I'm interested in my beep to bang time, but I'm interested in my beep to bang time from a posture that didn't cause him to shoot me before I ever got around to drawing. So what are we doing with our hands on, on our draw stroke? That's worth thinking about. Um, Think about communication and uh, in body language. Are we communicating uh, tactical deception? Uh, I want to be the perfect victim right up to the time I smack you or shoot you. As far as you're from the bad guy's perception, uh, sometimes it's appropriate to do boundary setting. So how do we boundary set? Generally, the hands come above our waist. They project towards someone. So let's practice from those kind of positions. Um, if I am practicing from a gun in hand position, there are times, and we I won't get into because I've had quite the discussion with law enforcement officers, and I, I try and stay in my lane. And if they tell me their policies and procedures allow them to do a thing, I'm not going to argue with them. Um, as a private citizen, I'm very concerned about getting my gun out and pointing it at people that I don't have legal justification to shoot. And I've heard you speak to that topic, so I know how you feel about it. Uh, but my point is, what ready position do I want? If I practice nothing but, uh, if my rule system allows me to put my sights immediately below the target or immediately at the belt line of this silhouette or at the feet of the silhouette um, or to the side of the silhouette, those are not all the same when it comes to physical performance. And if I practice a whole movement I can always do the last 10% of the movement. If I'm justified to have the gun, if he's already shot at me, he's peeking around something, I know his head's probably going to appear right there. I can lower the gun an inch. And when he pops the muzzle and head comes around, I'm there and I come up and shoot it. But if I spend all my practice only moving the gun an inch or three inches, that does not translate to being able to move the gun from what I call a neutral ready or starting position. Uh, what about if I don't know who I need to shoot yet, or I don't know whether he's going to come around the left corner or the right corner? Um, you know, there's so many videos out there now that we can look at and and see these things if we're looking for them. The um, it was a shooting a while back in a in a, a grocery store, and the guy's going to be coming in, but it's a broad entryway. Is he going to be hugging the right wall or the left wall, or is he going to be coming down the middle of it? your gun needs to be in a neutral enough place that you can respond to all three of those. So, so ready positions um, as well. I want to practice that visual perception response cycle uh, whenever possible. Um, I want to do all this with the equipment that I'm actually going to have, whether it's on the job or in, in my, my carry situation. I was at an event a while back, a multi-day event, and this uh, this one instructor participant uh, ran around the the whole uh, time with a Sig three sixty five, and then showed up to shoot the uh, the event uh, with a, uh, a a massive nineteen eleven or twenty eleven pattern gun. <laughs> That's cool. You do you, but that isn't me. 
me i want the i i I told you my interest is narrow my interest is does this stuff translate now if i'm a cop and i've got you know a duty gun and a carry gun that's 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 very legitimate Uh, i need to practice with both of them in that case Mm -hmm. i know what i can do uh, with both of them uh, I want to take into account the likely environment and how it's how it's likely to be populated. Um, if my training does not do anything to cause me to manage the environment, I actually saw a, uh, a review of your cognitive conclave, and uh, again, some very similar drills to things that I do with uh, bystanders in the foreground and uh, in uh, and beyond the targets, and uh, I do a drill with. Uh, with the neurosystem, imagine just the simplest version. Uh, imagine you're you're standing facing a target at three yards. There is a target three yards behind that target that is directly in line, and you can see that it's there, uh, but that's all you can see. And then from the second target, so also six yards away, one yard to the left or right is a third target. And uh, so the neuros allow us to project a light. And if I tell you that the rules for today is that as long as that uh, a subject, it's not a target till it becomes a, a threat, as long as that subject has a green light on it, it represents deadly threat. It's representing a deadly threat to you. You should engage it as long as the green light is there. You should stop engaging it when it's no longer a deadly threat. So now if I light up the target that's directly in front of you as a threat, well, if you want to be well prepared for this, um, do I have some concerns about either misses or bullets passing through that guy or he turns sideways? I've got somebody directly in line behind him. So I should be stepping offline uh, to see, to to uh, take those two out of alignment with each other. Um, if I light up the target directly in front of you and the target to the left of you as threats, well, now I'm looking at two bad two muzzles. I never want to be looking at even one. Now I'm looking at two. What do I want to do? I want to be moving strongly to the right to line those two up. Um, so I want to be aware of lining them up. I want to be aware of taking them out of alignment. Uh, what if we go back to the first one? We light up the one right in front of you as a threat. You begin to sidestep left to deconflict that. But as you do, you see the guy behind him as a threat too. You got to be stepping back to where you came from. So you're only looking at one muzzle. Now, all of these things, I I start those off with about five second exposures and very quickly go to four seconds and then to three second exposures. All of this is happening within the speed of what we have been told might be an average gunfight. Um, So we need that flash perception that leads to immediate cognition and movement all within the time of drawing your gun and firing the shot. that's that's the type of stuff that I like to to do with people. Um, so so that that's kind of that run through of kind of a skill development guidelines that I use of the things that I want to be doing from least complex to more complex. But I can always control my starting position. Um, I can always train with the right equipment that will give me the best bang for the buck in uh, in in my actual use. Um, and uh, now with equipment I have, I can always train a visual perception and a visual stop perception. So you never know, is that threat going to be lit up for three seconds or five seconds um, or something in between? And uh, as far as how many shots you're going to have to fire. Um, yeah. Thoughts? <laughs> I well, n- numerous. Numerous. Uh, one. 
from the business standpoint, we don't see instructors engaging in those type classes for a lot of reasons. One is they don't sell as well because students don't like to come to a class where they think they're going to fail. They want to come to the class where they perform this specific drill. They get the trinket and get to go home with it. Yeah. And put it on there. I love me while post their picture on Instagram. Sure. Et cetera. The other thing too, is that a lot of that you have to do it one at a time. And that cuts into the profitability of a class. Yep. If I can put 20 people on the line and run drills over and over again, I get paid by 20 students. You're absolutely right. But if I have to limit it to 12 students so that each student gets a reasonable amount of time to come up and it can be engaged and I can give them the attention they need to, well, now I've just taken eight paying slots away. And so and you look at a fixed overhead with travel costs being yeah. what they are today. That's the right. difference between just yep. breaking even and actually making a living, right? Yeah. You, you have to have profit to pay the bills uh, yeah. outside of the class. Yeah. yeah. And it's, we spend a lot of time on the start shooting problem because mm -hmm. that's a metric. Yeah. I can tell you what your beat to bang time was. You use your language there. Very little effort is spent on the stopping portion of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, folks, if you're interested in kind of exploring this a little more, Dustin Solomon, look at the book Building Shooters. Uh, that kind of give you an overview of uh, he goes pretty heavily into his, his thoughts on efficient training and or effective training, I should say, uh, for an agency or a large group, it would be very difficult to do some of the things unless you you have them for a, a period of time. Uh, you've got more flexibility as an individual, but to explore these concepts more, uh, building shooters goes into the, the concepts behind this stuff uh, really well. Yeah, I'm running uh, three systems um, with one uh, co-instructor. I can run three students at a time uh, on most of the drills. And that's technology-based. This technology is helping me do that. There's also, again, the stuff, the technology's in the beta. Uh, the hardware is pretty set, but the software is still, still a bit glitchy. And uh, they, they want to, before they bring it to market, it's going to be right. So um, it, it's not out there right now. But he's got things like a wristband that actually has an accelerometer and a microphone in it that is then talking to the master device um, so that we can run three shooters simultaneously and separate your performance out from the other two uh, based on that wristband is actually what's picking up your shots. And it's looking for the, the confluence of the recoil, um, the, the recoil impulse and the sound. And, uh, and that is, as Dustin says, you know, I wouldn't want anybody's job to hinge on it. Uh, but it is well over 90% accurate every once in a while. I, I think last time I used it, we ran in about 300 shots. I think I had five or six um, that uh, either didn't pick up or or picked up somebody else's shot type thing. Uh, so it's, it's pretty much there. Um, so technology is going to help us on this, but it, it's still lagging behind. Uh, but yeah, my classes are, are 12 folks. Thankfully, I, I have a business that I earn a living at, and I just need to not lose money <laughs> on the training side. Uh, but yeah, as a, as a traveling trainer, uh, what I'm doing would not work to earn a living uh, by, by any means. 
means. Uh, yeah, uh, Greg Elfitz pointed out too that uh, you know what he's seeing, and a bunch of other instructors are echoing what Greg has said. That people are waiting to the last minute to sign up for classes right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, there. Yeah, and that just makes it hard. I understand it from the consumer side, but yeah. from the other side, like if, if I'm going to fly to Colorado to teach a class, right. if I buy my ticket two months in advance, it's cheaper than buying at the week of the flight. Yeah, absolutely. And that 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 all that cuts into the overhead of teaching a class. And of course, we understand students have overhead too. Sure. And everything, but it's. All of those things are, are part of the equation yep. that yep. We, we all have to face. And as Chris Seifert would say, and pl please, audience, please don't take this in a bad way, is you can always count on human laziness. Yep. <laughs> and some of the stuff that, that John's talking about here in the classes are not, they're not easy. They're not as fun as going out there and just blasting a bunch of holes in a target on the beep. But where do you want to learn where your weaknesses are? Where do you, you know, you learn all of that in training and in your practice. That's where you should go and be willing to accept failure. I, I hear the technical people talk about, well, if you, if you never push yourself and accept the miss in training, then you'll never learn where your, where your wheels come off. Doesn't that apply to cognition as well? I think this is where we need to be focusing our training. You know, yes, go spend some time on developing your technical skills. You got to have the technical skills to be able to do everything else. But at a certain point, it's time to start veering into this. So, what is that other certain point? Uh, John, as a Green Beret, what metrics did your guys focus on on the square range? Yeah, this is a we give away. We've I've already been asked this question. I said we really didn't. Uh, I mean, there's you shoot quals, but you know, just as an example, um, well, I mean, there's just multiple examples. The bottom line is the vast majority of quals, frankly, the the timelines are just absolutely unrealistic. They're way too long. Um, that whole piece of you know how many shots you have to fire and you know how much time you have to do it in. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I'm starting to work on is I'm still designing quals using this visual system. And I'm still, I, I don't have it all figured out yet how I want to tweak it to get the right balance um, in there. But uh, one of the clients that I have, a uh, consistent client is an executive protection team that I've been working with for half a dozen years or more. And they routinely, one of the things I, I stress for folks like that, and frankly, church security teams and, and anybody that's a non-government entity that is performing armed um, activities, I think it's important for legal risk mitigation to be able to document your skill against a known standard. 
So uh, the guys, my executive protection teams, I have them shoot the Secret Service call uh, because if I have to go to court, what's better than to say that these people, this is how these people perform on the same test, uh, shot on the same target, the same standards as the guy that protects the president of the United States. I have them shoot the State Department diplomatic security call. I have them shoot the FBI call. As a team, their team aggregate average is over 95% in every one of those calls. Um, Yet, I first time I introduced these perception things to them, guess what? Um, well, I told you I've, I've done it with Ipsit Grandmasters. Um, and uh, yeah, their performance was not where they wanted it to be. So the quals, we shot the quals. You know, to answer your question, we had standard quals that we had to shoot. But we had enough people with experience and frankly, we had enough experience in other activities. So before Global War on Terror, GWAT, um, we didn't have, unless you were in some very specific units, you didn't have a large number of actual encounters. And what we found was, and there's, there's books that talk about this, if you look at the number of guys in Delta, for example, that had one of the following experience, mountain climbing, motorcycle racing, skydiving, right? All of these are activities where you have to make decisions under stress and decisions in a timely fashion in, in many cases. Uh, you need decisiveness and you're going to live or die on that decisiveness, or at least you're going to be successful or not successful based on that decisiveness. So to answer your question, uh, we had enough people with enough experience that realized that the perception, cognition, decision piece was critical, that pretty much we shot quals just to have them out of the way and to have them on the record. Uh, and then we worked on this other stuff uh, because that was identified by people that have been in bad places as being a more significant indicator of success and better preparation for success. I would say, quite frankly, and I heard John Hearn say something very similar, and if it's exactly parallel, but a, a B-class IPSC shooter probably has all the gun skill necessary, all the gun skill necessary by doing only that activity. Mm -hmm. So now we look at, and this is where I get in trouble. Then when I look at that activity and I go back to my needs analysis and I say, okay, that activity has made me a really good gun handler. I don't have to spend any cognitive load on shooting anymore. It's become, I've got a degree of automaticity there. What else do I need? I don't have any practice in that realm of making flash assessments of a physical scene and initiating movement based on uh, a flash visual assessment. I need to fill that in. And, and that's the process. And we need to go down the list that way. It's not that that activity is bad. It's not that that activity is gonna get you killed in the streets. It's that there, we, we can't get everything we need from a single activity. So conduct that needs analysis. Um, you know, when, when I do that, um, let me see here, somewhere I've got a list. Um, hmm. 
awareness, observation, body language, communication, perception, response cycle, tactics, weapon skills, unarmed skills, defensive driving, first aid, um, all just general topics of things that I that I want to work on. And, um, and and then to get, you know, down in the in the in the detail of each of those, you know, again, I, I look for analyze potential problems. Uh, nowadays, you know, uh, John Korea's active self-protection, as an example, there are just so many places out there where we can see actual criminal activity and see what we can learn from it. And I, not to take anything away from John, but something I learned uh, as a human intelligence collector, we always want to get what we call, we want to obtain the peer version first. I want to, so I actually, the first time I watch anything, I turn I turn the sound off. I don't want to hear what somebody else says about it because that's going to get my brain thinking down certain pathways. I want to look at it strictly from the point of view of if I was the camera, that's the easiest one to do. What would I have seen? What were the cues? What were the actions available to me? Then project that as the victim and then project that as bystanders or different people, different places in there. Um, then you can listen to what somebody else says about it. But uh, I turn the sound off and get the get the peer version uh, first. Then I want to analyze that for potential courses of action. And in those courses of action, how are they triggered? Uh, again, mostly visual. I want to establish a framework of preferred actions. Like my, my general rule, I don't want to be looking at the wrong end of a muzzle. I definitely don't want to be looking at the end of two muzzles. What's the required skill? I have to see it. I have to see it and react to it quickly. And I have to move. You know, we get into, I've, I've got my list of... Uh, commonly undertrained, uh, underdeveloped skills and movement is another one that is just um, high on my list because I, so um, actual encounters are, you, you learn a lot, obviously, about yourself and other things if you're ever in uh, any use of force encounter. I, I don't care if it's dealing with a bully, uh, let alone being shot at or being in a gunfight. Um, but training with something like simunitions, if it's done by the right people in the right way, does a couple things for us. One is it removes what I call the bozo factor. Uh, when we were talking about room entries, if the people you're going up against are bozos, you can moonwalk backwards into the room and it'll all work out. Um, it doesn't mean moonwalking backwards into the room is the best way to do it. But it was successful, John. I did it for X amount of time and I came back and I've got this emotional attachment to it. Okay. Now let's do that with uh, a dedicated opponent with simunitions so that we can actually kind of document where the weaknesses of moonwalking backwards into the room are and look for other ways to do it. So in, uh, in scenario-based training, I've experienced multiple times and at the National Tactical Invitational where we had sometimes highly trill skilled role players, uh, SWAT team members, and multiple times after the scenario and go back and find the paint marks from the simunition along the wall that I was moving along. Um, had I been standing still, I'm pretty sure I would have been painted, uh, but I was never hit. Why was I never hit? I believe it's because I was moving. Uh, at least it made it more difficult. And what we do see is when people do get hit, they get hit much more peripherally if they're moving. All right, so now we look at movement. If I stand there with a hatchet, I actually do this in one of my classes. I took a plastic hatchet in and I said, all right, I'm going to embed this hatchet in your chest. So when I throw it at you, what are you going to do? You're going to move. 
you're going to move instantly. But now I put a SIM gun in my hand or a blue gun in my hand. And when I begin to point it at you, the average student starts to draw. They don't move. Their body doesn't move. They begin to draw. Why? Because it's a deadly force encounter. And guess what? The bullet's going to get there at least as fast as the hatchet, <laughs> maybe faster. You probably ought to be moving so you have time to complete your draw. So I do drills where we look at your draw time. We look at your movement time. Then, so an example, we all know from the Tudor drill, the average person, quote unquote, can move seven yards in one and a half seconds, the time to draw. So I actually time people on their draw. My indoor range that I own has relatively narrow bays. It's only 25 feet across. The average student can move most of the way across that in the time it takes them to draw. And if I just compare their draw time to their movement time, yet if I give them a task of drawing and shooting, they somehow magically manage to draw and shoot three to four rounds before they get to the other side of the bay. How did they do that? Well, they moved at one quarter of their actual movement speed is how they did that, which means they weren't very effective at being a moving target. So... Um, so my goal is we get those two times and then I want to get you as close to hundred percent of both of them as we can. If I can get you to where you can go 90% as far with 90% of the speed of the draw, we're there. That's really about it. Most people, it's going to be some trade-off, but I would uh, suggest to you that since we know that the guy is unlikely to cease his, his actions immediately upon the bullet striking him probably not getting shot which means moving to buy yourself time to shoot more is better than standing still and shooting faster um that's just an opinion uh but uh but it's is my opinion and i structure my classes that way <laughs> to uh to do what i believe is realistic movement uh, then we get into the mechanics of movement and how inefficient uh you know, there's a movement technique from sports that people that have engaged in sports and many sports are familiar with. Uh, it's called a split step or a scissor step, and it's particularly appropriate. You'll see a shortstop doing it. You'll see a tennis player receiving a serve. As the ball leaves the bat, the shortstop widens his stance out, crouches, gets a plyometric uh, contraction of his muscles, reads whether the ball's going to the left or the right, or, or the play is causing him to move to the left or the right. His, his hips shift in that direction. He drives off. Um, same thing with receiving a serve in, in tennis. And I'll see people, instructors demonstrating that and or not correcting students from doing that. And what are you talking about, John? Well, I'm talking about in the first beat of time, however adroit you are, you didn't displace at all other than you went directly down a little bit. You never see a boxer move like that. You'll never see a fencer move like that when they're trying to get out from in front of the punch or the blade. You need to pick up the foot in the direction of movement and drive. That's what begins to immediately displace your center. Um, 
So all the stuff we can go from macro down to really micro of looking at the physical techniques we get uh, before we ever get to cognition, we have to have perception. Uh, I can see that with the students, um, the, the difficulty. So we have a step-by-step -step progression of uh, causing you to have to see what's going on at the target while maintaining acceptable accuracy. So we can break this stuff down. It's, it's similar again to getting in the weight room. Uh, if you're an NFL player, you're still doing strength training. You're still doing uh, coordination drills. You're still doing conditioning drills. And frankly, if we look at modern sports science, you see them doing perception, cognition, decision training that is not using any of the equipment that is found in their sport. Things like touching uh, colored lights or uh, various other responses. So there's, there's just a lot we can do uh, to, to improve our abilities in these areas. There you go. Yeah, we're recording this on Sunday. Yesterday, there was a horrible incident in the Dallas, Texas metro area. I believe it was in Allen, Texas, Texas, where it took place. I have it on pretty good, reliable sources that the officer that responded to that incident recognized that the back guy was probably wearing body armor and went immediately to a headshot and took out the guy. That's perceiving and yes, making a decision and executing the yep. decision. Yep. It's also confidence in your skill set that you can deliver. Do you know if he, uh, what weapon system he used to engage? Uh, I believe it was an AR. I believe it was an AR. Uh, I'm not certain of that, uh, but, but, but that's uh, my indications are that it was a rifle. And so, yeah, we're in America, probably. Certainly in <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's uh, I, I don't think this is limited to active shooter situations, but um, but we we know more about those. They, they we the videos are out there and that sort of thing. And uh you know, I'd look at uh, last year, the the shooting in the mall. Uh, gosh, I've forgotten where it was, where the young man, Indiana, uh, Indiana um, you know, he commented in, in one of his uh, statements said at one point he had to stop shooting because a bystander was coming into his line of fire. Um, if we look at the uh, active shooting at uh, in White Center, um, Texas. Uh, again, the, the hero there responded that he had to withhold his initial engagement because a, a member of the congregation was standing up into his line of fire. Those are examples of perception, cognition. Um, and uh, frankly, from what I've seen with my students um, who have high degrees of physical skill, they don't all have that just uh, just right out of the box untrained um right. and uh and we definitely see that there are things we can do that that improve that um i i think it's i think it's something that transcends i mean for me i had five kids and i remember a, a certain incident and it did not turn into a lethal force encounter um we were walking out into a parking lot, leaving a restaurant and my one son, it was late and it was a quiet parking lot. And I'm not as concerned about traffic, but just in general, uh, six-year-old starting to kind of run ahead a bit and a, uh, definite shady character that, uh, 
was haunting the area. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I absolutely began moving to both get between my uh, the kid and the threat. And at the same time, the direction I had to do that, if I kept going further, if I had to apply lethal force or actually other family members that now I'm closing on. So it, it's just, it, I think it's, it's universal. I think if we're not working that stuff, we're, we're not doing the best we can to prepare. There you go. Yeah. So where can people find you? Uh, so, um, I have classes coming up in uh, in Colorado in June that still has uh, slots in it. I think there might be one or two slots in a class in Oklahoma. It's actually the beginning of June. Both of those are coming up pretty quick. And I know a lot of people have set their schedules, but uh, those are possibilities. Uh, recently just added a class in the Nashville area in September. Um, and... Uh, We'll probably put one or two classes on later in the year out and about. And you can find those. The website is westcoastarmorynorth.com. Way longer than I'd like it to be, but but I'll get <laughs> shortening that sometime. Just a heads up, there is a West Coast Armory. If you start typing, it will auto-complete to West Coast Armory. You will not find my information there. That is not me. Westcoastarmorynorth.com. Uh, go to the training tab, the very top. Uh, most of the classes I do now are at my home range, and they are short classes. Um, I, that's a whole training philosophy thing that that I got into and Dustin Solomon uh, promotes. Uh, obviously, on the road, we're putting together two-day classes. So at the very top of the page, you'll see a, a block that says out-of-state training. Uh, if you're somewhere else in the country and want to know if I'm coming close to you, that's where you'll see it. Uh, right now, like I say, there's only four classes there. One of them already took place. Uh, but I'm only going to do at most uh, half a dozen classes a year, and they're going to be limited to 12 people. So if you can possibly get in on one of the ones in June uh, coming up, uh, that might be actually your best bet to get in because these ones that are a little further out, we're starting to get out a little bit and, and we're seeing more interest in those. The one in Nashville, is that going to be at the Royal Ranch? It is not. It is. Oh, shoot. Uh, it is, it's not a Royal Rage. Um, I'll have to, I, I just locked that in and I honestly don't remember. Let me look here real quick and I will tell you where it is. It is at on target shooting sports. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, uh, I, I would like to do a class there at Royal range as well. I've heard nothing but great things, but mm -hmm. Uh, I'd already been talking to these other folks, so they got right. first crack at that one. Right. Yeah, maybe I'll do Royal Range next year. Uh, sitting here doing the math and thinking, you know, on target is probably 45 minutes closer to my house than Royal Range is. So oh, there, right. there's that. September, love to have you. Love to have you. Yeah. Awesome. Uh -huh. uh, what else you got coming up other than than that? Anything? No, that's really it. Um, I've got uh, I've got things I do. Uh, if you happen to be in the Seattle area, uh, I've got a thing I call study group that uh, meets twice a month. Actually, I have two uh, two 
two uh, cohorts of that one meets uh, on Wednesday evenings and one meets on Saturday evenings. And uh, we have a lot of fun with that because that's uh, an ongoing. I, I took that and I did more like a, you know, martial arts class or whatever, something you're yeah. going to come to regularly. And uh, so folks that are local to me get to do that. And that's where I try out all these things, actually, and work out all the details and work out this new technology. And then I put those lessons learned into the two-day class that I take on the road. Uh, if my deputies ever figure out that I use them as lab rats, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, uh... yeah. It, it's amazing how much stuff from uh, those experimentations right? uh, tend to... to and, it's, and it benefits everybody. Yeah, uh, it benefits them and you. On the next iteration, you use the lessons mm -hmm. learned, and uh, you know that's. I, I think that is the key that uh, that marks the type of instructor that I want to be and the type of instructor that I I seek out. Uh, I try and take two to three classes every year. I, I make it a point. It used to be three and not try. I will take three classes a year from other people. Now, honestly, I'm down to two uh, plus one conference like the Range Master Conference where I don't get uh, necessarily, you know, the whole package from any from a person. But I can at least get a, an idea of what concepts they think are important and what they're working on. Uh, I, I think it's important. We've got to stay learning. We've got to stay growing. Um, it's it's your brain is a muscle. If you're not using it, you're losing it. Well, you and I were joking recently. We got paired up as partners as yet, yet again yeah, in another again. class. Like, yeah. How many different ranges and classes have we been shooting partners? Yeah, and, I know and, at least five states. Yep, exactly. So how many ranges? Yeah, fun. Yeah. yeah. And fun how most of the time that somebody else is is setting it up even. And yeah, it's like, I don't know I, what I end up with John, so here yep. we go. Yeah. <laughs> Not complaining, I actually like it. But yep. yeah, no, just... I, I enjoy it as well. It's, that's, uh, uh, yeah. iron sharpens iron, right? Yeah, I got one comment and then one other question. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you talked about you want the blank slate when you first watch the video and not what someone else's perceptions are. Um, I'll just say that it, uh, I've personally been involved in a case that became the focal point of certain internet commentary. Uh, I'm not a negative way, mm -hmm. but it was just well discussed because the the person that was involved is kind of known in the in mm -hmm. the industry and and uh, or the community. I guess would be a better way of saying that. And so the incident got discussed a lot. I was at the trial where that part of that incident went to trial mm -hmm. and the commentary that was prevalent on the M on the internet was not at all what the jury focused on right. not a bit and i'm sitting there watching this all take place in real time in the courtroom going wow yeah you know all of us learned individuals are all focused in on this other stuff and the jury sees mm. in on one very interesting one yeah. area one incident portion of it and so, you know, what we're what we get to arguing about amongst ourselves a lot just may not be what the what the rest of the world looks at. Yeah. Interesting. Or the people I, in the jury box look at. I'd be interested to hear more about that and, sure. and you know, I understand doing sure. some witness work as well, that mm -hmm. uh, maybe not the details, but what the uh, what the concepts are. It's sure. uh, well, was it anything particularly surprising what they focused uh, on? Well, I don't mind discussing it. Uh, Adam Thor's shooting. The videos up on YouTube. You can watch it. Everybody focused in on, 
you know, the fact that the deputies knocked on the door and loudly announced themselves for over 10 minutes before they go in. And then they up and, you know, throw ends up having to shoot, shoot the guy because he got up and he pulled a gun on the deputies. Right. Well, when it came time to go on the jury, because the guy that threw a shot was put on trial for aggravated assault against the deputies. He claimed that the deputies came through the door and pointed their flashlights in his face and that he didn't know it was deputy sheriffs. Yep. And the jury, it came down to, they went back to the video, paused it at that point, and then watched it frame by frame to see where the deputy's flashlight was. Interesting, yeah. And when they look at it, the flashlight's pointed at the ground. It was a weapon-mounted light, and right. it's at the ground, and it does not rise up onto the, the the person on trial at that point until his gun is pointed at them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they were like, oh, no, they didn't shine the flashlight in his eyes. He's guilty. Yep. Yeah. Nobody talked about that. Right. Interesting. And yeah. that's the thing is we watch these videos in vacuums. Mm-hmm. We don't hear the interviews. We don't hear what the other party has to say about the whole thing. And I got to tell you, the guy was convincing. I think he's convinced himself that that's what happened. Yep, absolutely. And then the jury went back and and watched it. I I testified at that trial as an expert witness. And part of the thing I testified to is that the suspect in the case got up and he racked the slide on his pistol. Uh And the prosecution wanted me to testify that the sound of the pistol being racked was not the deputies doing that. And I had to testify that the deputies would have been walking, you know, around in the world where they around in the chamber, because what do they see on TV and the movies all the time? As you're hunting the bad guy, the dramatic moment, you get the the round chamber and everything. The prosecution is like, we have to make sure that the jury understands that that was the suspect racking a slide, not the deputies. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and how would the deputy recognize as a sound of danger? Well, that one deputy worked in a gun store before he became a cop. So how many times has he heard a slide rack? Yeah, you know, he's been a cop for so many years. He's a firearms instructor, all these things like that. He knows what the sound of a pistol being racked is. Yep. I would hope to never have to uh, try and convince a, a, a jury of it, but uh, I'm sure you do the same thing. You can tell whether that slide went forward. In, in many cases, if it's any of the firearms we're familiar with, we can mm-hmm. tell went forward on an empty chamber or whether it picked up around mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. i have at times said someone just chambered around in a 45 i'm in a yeah. 19 and turned around yeah. and there it was yeah uh, I, I can tell you that i absolutely beyond the shadow of a doubt know the sound of a pistol being drawn from a safari land duty holster there you go yep. from all angles yep. including exactly. behind me when it shouldn't be happening uh-huh yeah <laughs> Uh, so so my my final question is at the very beginning you've been saying you've been trying to impart certain things to the younger generation of instructors are Mm. they listening Mm. some are absolutely and uh you know there's there's folks like uh frankly most well i would say probably everyone i i have not listened to every one of your podcasts that's the only reason that i modify it by saying uh i'm sure most uh <laughs> you crushed, but I, not, crushed. I have not heard everyone <laughs> i haven't listened to every one of them either because yeah. i'm doing them recorded there you but, go uh, um 
you know, the, the fact of the matter is, folks, there there are some great resources out here. And if you're listening to this, you have found one of them. Uh, the, that We's Got, Weems Guy podcast. Uh, the guest that, uh, barring today, uh, the guests that Lee brings on are the folks that, in, in my opinion, um, you really need to be listening to. Uh, they are thinkers before shooters. They are thinkers before actors. Uh, they are people that are constantly trying to grow and learn their knowledge. And part of that is perfect, continue to perfect the craft of passing that knowledge on in the most efficient way. And uh, sometimes I think people don't understand that either. That's a, that's a constant. doesn't mean you were a bad instructor. But the fact of the matter is I can get the average group, whatever that is, further in the same amount of time now than I could 15 years ago. Um, we become more efficient We in, in many ways. So bottom line is, yes, there are folks out there that are listening. And uh, most of us are developing the ability or have the ability pretty quickly to figure out those. Um, you know, I, I tell people there's a difference between doctrine and dogma. Um, doctrine in and of itself is not only not bad, it's necessary at a certain point of your development. You need a cohesive system. Uh, is everything inside that system, is it the end all be all final? No. But if you don't start from some cohesive system, you know, if I use uh, martial arts analogies, the, the guy that's a, a yellow belt in five arts um, I, I'm sorry, He's he doesn't know enough to be able to go out there and take the best from all of the arts yet. You need a good, solid background in one of them. So you need doctrine to start with, and then you can expand. Dogma, however, is, uh, is that unreasoning uh, acceptance of what you're being told, a belief or way of doing something. And uh, I think all of us uh, avoid dogma. Um, us as in the folks who who participate in this uh an upcoming episode is going to be on choosing instructors uh, yeah and uh i'll give away one of my 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 tips right there is i look at who instructors surround themselves with mm -hmm. if they surround themselves with people who won't challenge them then yep. that's someone that i'm not going to pay attention to yep absolutely yeah, if they're not surrounding themselves by people who will call them out. Sure. Then, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Then, then that, that, there's a problem there. There's a problem. Embracing that idea that uh, if, if you point out, whether it's an exercise that you put me through or a conversation, uh, if you point out a gap, that should be something to rejoice. That, that should be something. Mm -hmm. You you know if you can get it to right. where we're at like right. get I, I'll admit I definitely you know kick myself in the ass sometimes is my first reaction is like damn I screwed that up uh, but right behind it hopefully is that idea of right. well now I know what to work on and yep. I know how to work on it so boy that was useful right. you know that that was that was time well spent um, right. inventing myself that something I already do well is cool is not particularly time well spent. You know, I, I love harassing John Hearn. I absolutely, it's one of my favorite things. I wake up in the morning, how do I get to harass John today? And when I go to bed at night, did I harass John enough today before it was over? But I also look at that as a measuring stick. Is there anything that I'm doing that John's going to be able to smack me with? 
Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to give him that opportunity in that opening. Uh, some, awesome. You know, are they, are you surround, is it, is it surrounding themselves mm-hmm. with people who are going to challenge them mm-hmm. and, and question what they're doing and make them, if, if they're just surrounding themselves with people that are just going to, yay team, then yeah. they're, I will question whether or not they're scared of their material being exposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good observation. I would agree. All right. And uh, with that, sir, I always appreciate your time. And like I say, I've told people before that I love talking to John Holstrom because I learned stuff from the questions he asked me. I'm uh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm a big, a big believer in that. Uh, I, I frequently tell people on a topic, I, I think I've got most of the questions figured out. Uh, I'm, I'm still working on the answers. But if you're not asking the right questions, how are you making any progress? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for your time today, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me on and uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about this stuff. And uh, yeah, look forward to next time. Sure. And to the audience, uh, before I give my usual closing uh for those of you that listen to this to the podcast on an audio podcast feed like apple google whatever uh spotify is the parent host like i i upload everything to spotify for podcasters and that distributes out to the others uh i don't sell advertising on the show i've just made it I've turned down some opportunities. I could be making some more money off the show. The only income that comes in is from listener support and from the little ad that you hear at the beginning of each episode. Uh, Spotify has recently changed uh, their formula where they are paying more if you are listening to if the audience listens via Spotify versus listen to it via Apple. Yeah, if you want to help, listen via Spotify. There you versus go. Listen to the others. Yep. It, it makes a little, a little bit of difference if I remember to put the ad in the episode. Good <laughs> I, have to, I have to remember to click that button. Remember to put the ad in. All right. And they changed part. it. Like they changed the format every so often. And it's like, well, how do I do it now? Is you have to actually click a button that inserts their their ad. I don't decide what the ads are. It's it's theirs. Uh-huh. But um, us folks, I understand that your most important asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us. Thank you.